Introduction The critically ill or injured child must be evaluated rapidly to minimize morbidity and mortality. Whether presenting to the physician's office, local clinic, community hospital, or to the emergency department at a tertiary care center, the patient should be stabilized by administering basic life support and pediatric advanced life support measures recommended by the American Heart Association. Once the patient is clinically stable, a problem list can be generated and the cause of the child's symptoms can be determined. In 2010, the American Heart Association issued updated guidelines for basic life support, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and emergency cardiovascular care. Prior to the updated guidelines the initial assessment of a critically ill patient followed the sequence of airway, breathing, and circulation. Presently, the American Heart Association recommends that the assessment of circulation occur prior to that of airway and breathing. This is based on a comprehensive review of the literature on adult and pediatric resuscitation. As a result the concept of hands-only CPR was introduced for the lay rescuer. In adults, bystander CPR with compressions only has been associated with a positive impact on survival and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. However, conventional CPR, compressions with rescue breaths, remains the superior method in children. Differential diagnosis Regardless of this paradigm shift in resuscitation, it is important to note that the majority of cases of pediatric cardiac arrest result from progressive respiratory failure or shock rather than a primary cardiac cause. 90% of cases of pediatric cardiopulmonary arrest result from respiratory, 45%, cardiac, 25%, and primary central nervous system, 20%, etiologies. Table 20 to 1 delineates the differential diagnoses of cardiopulmonary arrest in children. Clinical manifestations and treatment Primary survey The primary assessment, FIG, 20 to 1, involves evaluation of circulation, airway, breathing, disability, and exposure. The aim of the primary assessment is to identify life-threatening conditions and begin cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, if necessary, Table 20 to 2. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation Cardiopulmonary arrest is defined as the absence of a pulse in the large arteries of an unconscious patient who is not breathing. To assess the need for CPR first check to see if the patient is responsive to verbal or physical stimuli. If the patient is breathing regularly they do not need CPR. Seaholdren in respiratory distress will often assume a position of comfort that they should be allowed to maintain if possible. In the unresponsive child healthcare providers should take no longer than 10 seconds to check for a pulse. Palpate the brachial pulse in infants, and the femoral or carotid pulse in children. If there is no pulse, or if you encounter a patient who is not breathing, or merely gasping, this patient is in cardiopulmonary arrest, and you should initiate CPR, starting with chest compressions. The goal of CPR is to provide high-quality chest compressions that generate blood flow to vital organs. High-quality compressions require a rescuer to push hard and fast at a rate of at least 100 compressions per minute. Effective compressions are administered with a force sufficient to depress the chest to a depth at least one-third the anterior-posterior diameter of the chest. This equates to a depth of 1.5 in, 4 cm, in infants, and 2 in, 5 cm, in children. After the initial set of compressions the airway is then opened using the head tilt-chin-lift maneuver and two rescue breaths are then administered, assuring that chest rise is visualized. A compression-to-ventilation ratio of 30 to 2 is appropriate for the lone rescuer whereas a ratio of 15 to 2 can be used if two rescuers are present. It is important to remember that fatigue during CPR can lead to ineffective chest compressions. Rotate the role of chest compressions every two minutes. Minimize interruptions to chest compressions whenever possible, as coronary perfusion pressure may rapidly decline during delays. Circulation
circulation is assessed by evaluating pulses, central and peripheral, capillary refill, and blood pressure. In children, heart rate is the most sensitive measure of intravascular volume status. Capillary refill is the most sensitive measure of adequate circulation. Blood pressure fluctuations are an insensitive indicator, because hypotension is a late finding in hypovolemia. Cardiopulmonary monitors are helpful to determine the electrical activity of the heart and to provide continuous feedback on the patient's cardiopulmonary status. Airway The goals of airway management are to recognize and relieve obstruction, promote adequate gas exchange, and prevent aspiration of gastric contents. The airway is assessed and, if necessary, secured as follows. Immobilize the cervical spine if there is a possibility of spinal cord injury. Open the airway via the jaw thrust or chin lift maneuver and relieve any obstruction caused by the tongue or soft tissues of the neck. Clear the airway, suction the nose and mouth as indicated. Remove any visualized foreign body if the patient cannot cough or vocalize. Place an oral or a nasopharyngeal airway if indicated. Provide 100% oxygen via nasal cannula, face mask, non-rebreather mask, or bag valve mask. Assist ventilation, e.g., bag mask ventilation, if indicated. Breathing. Once an airway is established, air exchange should be evaluated. Examination of chest wall movement will reveal the presence and effectiveness of spontaneous respirations. If spontaneous respiration is present with adequate oxygenation and ventilation, intubation is not indicated. If respiratory effort or chest wall excursion is not adequate, or if the airway cannot be easily maintained endotracheal tube placement is necessary. Both cuffed and uncuffed endotracheal tubes are appropriate for intubating infants and children. Cuffed endotracheal tubes may decrease the risk of aspiration, and in circumstances where poor lung compliance or high airway resistance are present, a cuffed endotracheal tube may be preferable. The size of the uncuffed endotracheal tube should equal 4 plus, age in years divided by 4. The size of the cuffed endotracheal tube should equal 3.5 plus, age in years divided by 4, though helpful. These calculations are less accurate estimates of endotracheal tube size than length-based resuscitation tapes, especially for children less than 35 kg. Blood oxygenation, via pulse oximetry or arterial blood gas measurement, and blood CO2 level, by arterial or venous blood gas measurement, should be assessed to help guide respiratory management. To avoid hyperoxia, titrate oxygen administration to maintain the oxyhemoglobin saturation is greater than or equal to 94%. Neonatal intubation is traditionally performed without premedication, but intubation of the infant or child is undertaken with premedication in the following rapid sequence fashion, which should only be performed by providers proficient in the evaluation and management of the pediatric airway. Preoxygenate with 100% oxygen. Administer a vagolytic drug, atropine, in children less than one year of age. Ideally, it should be administered at least three to five minutes prior to the sedative and paralytic. Administer a sedative, hypnotic, and or opioid drug, e.g., atomidate, ketamine, versed, fentanyl. Administer a paralyzing dose of a neuromuscular blocking agent, e.g., succinylcholine, depolarizing agent, or rocuronium or vecuronium, non-depolarizing agents. Assess the patient for apnea, jaw relaxation, and loss of muscle tone following fasciculation. Intubate the trachea under direct visualization. Confirm correct placement of the endotracheal tube using at least two methods, auscultation, chest rise and fall, end tidal CO2 detector, mist in the tube. Applying cricoid pressure during rapid sequence intubation is no longer universally recommended as there is insufficient evidence that it will prevent aspiration of gastric contents during intubation in children. Do not continue to use cricoid pressure if it interferes with ventilation or airway visualization. 
In the unconscious patient premedication is not indicated. In the child with septic shock do not use automidate when performing rapid sequence intubation, as it can cause adrenal suppression, and is associated with a higher mortality rate. Rarely, a patient cannot be intubated or ventilated with a bag and mask, and an emergency needle crocothyrotomy is required to establish an airway. Disability A rapid screening neurologic examination is performed to note pupillary response, level of consciousness, and localizing findings. It is important to consider the patient's behavior in the context of normal childhood development. If possible, allowing the child to remain in the arms of a parent can improve the ability to get an accurate examination. When encountering medically complex children with special needs be sure to ask caregivers about their child's adaptive behaviors and specific concerns related to their medical history. Exposure Because of children's large surface-to-body mass ratio, they cool rapidly, and passive heat loss can be problematic. Careful attention should be provided to patients with burns, or those with fevers as they can lose body heat rapidly. Children exposed to toxins with remnants of those substances on their clothing and or skin should be appropriately decontaminated to reduce the risk of chemical exposure to medical providers and other patients. Vascular access Vascular access is critical for resuscitative fluid and drug administration during cardiopulmonary resuscitation and is outlined in Figure 20-2. If hypotension due to hemorrhage is suspected, gaining proximal control of the hemorrhage and volume resuscitation with type O negative blood is vital. Optimally, a full set of screening tests, including complete blood count, arterial and or venous blood gas, electrolyte and chemistry panel, and blood glucose, is obtained at the time of vascular access. If difficultly obtaining intravenous access is suspected, obtaining laboratory studies can be deferred if obtaining those studies might jeopardize the ability to successfully place the IV. If ingestion is a possibility, serum and urine toxicology and acetaminophen and salicylate levels may be obtained. Secondary assessment. After completion of the primary assessment and appropriate interventions to stabilize the child, the secondary assessment should be performed. The components of the secondary assessment are the focused history and physical examination. The sample mnemonic may be utilized to identify important aspects of the child's history and presenting complaint, signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, past medical history, last meal, events leading up to the injury and or illness. The clinician should attempt to gain information that might help explain impaired respiratory, cardiovascular, or neurologic function. A thorough head-to-toe physical examination follows. The severity of the child's illness or injury should determine the extent of the physical examination. Tertiary assessment. The tertiary assessment consists of ancillary studies to detect and identify the presence and severity of respiratory and circulatory abnormalities. The term tertiary does not mean these are performed third. The timing of tertiary tests is dictated by the clinical situation. Ancillary studies that may assist with the assessment of cardiorespiratory abnormalities include arterial blood gas, arterial lactate, venous blood gas, central venous oxygen saturation, hemoglobin concentration, oxyhemoglobin saturation via pulse oximetry, invasive arterial pressure monitoring, mixed venous pressure monitoring, exhaled CO2 monitoring, chest X-ray, echocardiography, and peak expiratory flow rate. Shock Shock is a syndrome characterized by the inability of the circulatory system to provide adequate delivery of oxygen and nutrients to meet the metabolic demands of the body tissues and vital organs. Children, especially neonates, will initially try to compensate by becoming tachycardic and increasing systemic vascular resistance through peripheral vasoconstriction. Hypotension, a late finding, leads to cellular hypoperfusion, metabolic acidosis, and cellular death. Three relationships explain hypotension in shock. 
Stroke volume is determined by preload, ventricular end-diastolic volume, afterload, systemic vascular resistance, and myocardial contractility cardiac output equals stroke volume times heart rate blood pressure equals cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. Shock may be compensated, decompensated, or irreversible. In compensated shock, homeostatic mechanisms maintain essential organ perfusion by increasing heart rate and systemic vascular resistance in an effort to preserve cardiac output and perfusion pressure respectively. Blood pressure, urine output, and cardiac function may all be normal. In decompensated shock, compensatory mechanisms fail and patients become hypotensive because of ischemia, endothelial injury, and the elaboration of toxic materials. Signs of inadequate end-organ perfusion include depressed mental status, tachypnea, decreased urine output, weak central pulses, mottled or gray skin color, and metabolic acidosis. In infants and children hypotension is defined by systolic blood pressure. The following values represent the estimated fifth percentile for systolic blood pressure in children of various ages. Any value systolic blood pressure less than the following is considered hypotension. Eventually, cellular function deteriorates and multi-organ system dysfunction results. When this process has caused irreparable functional loss in essential organs, a terminal or irreversible shock state is reached. It is important to note that shock evolves along a continuum, and a patient in decompensated shock can progress to cardiopulmonary arrest in minutes. Shock can be categorized into hypovolemic, cardiogenic, distributive, and obstructive types. Specific etiologies are outlined in Table 20-3. Hypovolemic shock is the most common type of shock in children and is due to decreased intravascular volume, which results in decreased venous return and myocardial preload. Because of the reduction in myocardial preload, there is a resultant decrease in stroke volume, cardiac output, and blood pressure. Pulses are often weak and capillary refill is prolonged in patients with this form of shock. Cardiogenic shock is the result of pump failure. Inadequate stroke volume, whether due to poor contractility, or arrhythmias result in diminished cardiac output and hypotension. In the patient with tachyrrhythmias, SVT, VT, therapeutic decisions are based on whether the patient is hemodynamically stable or unstable. Supraventricular tachycardia, SVT, narrow QRS complex, is less than or equal to 0.09 S. Hemodynamically stable, vagal maneuvers and adenosine. Hemodynamically unstable or SVT refractory to medications. Synchronized cardioversion 0.5 to 1 J per kilogram. If initial cardioversion is unsuccessful increase to 2 J, kilogram. Sedate if possible prior to cardioversion, but do not delay cardioversion. Ventricular tachycardia, VT, or ventricular fibrillation, VF, wide QRS complex, is greater than or equal to 0.09 S. Hemodynamically stable VT amiodarone or procainamide, and treat hypomagnesemia and or hypokalemia. Multiple antiarrhythmic drugs should not be used simultaneously because of the risk of conduction abnormalities and hypotension. If medication therapy does not convert the VT, synchronized cardioversion 0.5 to 1 J per kilogram may be utilized. If initial cardioversion is unsuccessful increase to 2 J, kilogram VF, pulseless VT. Provide CPR until the defibrillator is ready to deliver unsynchronized cardioversion at 2J per kilogram followed by immediate resumption of CPR for 2 minutes. If a shockable rhythm persists shock again at 4J kilogram. Administer epinephrine 0.01 mg per kilogram, 0.1 milliliters per kilogram of the 1 to 10,000 concentration, every 3 to 5 minutes. Patients with asystole or pulseless electrical activity require 2 minutes of CPR and administration of epinephrine, and an additional 2 minutes of CPR with a new rhythm and pulse check. 
It is important to consider the reversible causes of pulseless arrest in children, the so-called H's and T's. They include hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ion, acidosis, hypoglycemia, hypo, hyperkalemia, hypothermia, tension pneumothorax, tamponade, cardiac, toxins, thrombosis, pulmonary or coronary. For a full discussion of drug physiology, indications, dosage, route of administration, effects, and side effects, see the American Academy of Pediatrics and American Heart Association Pediatric Advanced Life Support Provider Manual. Table 20-4 describes the indications and effects of each drug. Distributive shock results from an abnormality in vasomotor tone that leads to maldistribution of a normal circulatory volume in a state of relative hypovolemia. Because of peripheral pooling, preload is reduced, causing a decrease in stroke volume, cardiac output, and blood pressure. Systemic vascular resistance is also decreased due to vasomotor dysfunction. Because both systemic vascular resistance and cardiac output are reduced, severe hypotension results. Septic shock, a cause of distributive shock, results when certain pathogens infect the blood. The early compensated stage of septic shock is characterized by decreased systemic vascular resistance where patients may have bounding pulses, whereas in the late decompensated phase, hypovolemia from third spacing and pump failure due to myocardial depression becomes more apparent. Early administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics and intravenous fluids is critical in patients with suspected sepsis. Anaphylactic shock is a form of distributive shock that is precipitated by exposure to allergens. It is defined as a rapidly developing illness involving the skin, mucosal tissue, or both and respiratory compromise, hypotension, or both. Cutaneous symptoms are present in more than 90% of cases of anaphylaxis. A third type of distributive shock is neurogenic, spinal, shock which occurs after a spinal cord or central nervous system injury. These patients often have both bradycardia and hypotension, in contrast to the tachycardia and hypotension seen in order forms of shock because the sympathetic tract has been disrupted. Obstructive shock is a condition of impaired cardiac output caused by physical obstruction of blood flow into or out of the heart. Cardiac tamponade and tension pneumothorax cause obstruction of blood flow into the heart, while pulmonary embolism and congenital heart disease lesions with ductal-dependent systemic blood flow produce obstruction of blood flow out of the heart. Lesions that obstruct blood flow into the heart decrease preload stroke volume and cardiac output. Lesions that obstruct blood flow out of the heart may cause myocardial pump failure, secondary cardiogenic shock, and decreased stroke volume and cardiac output. Clinical manifestations History and physical examination The history should focus on potential causes of shock. Hypovolemic shock is likely if there is a history of vomiting, diarrhea, polyuria, burns, trauma, surgery, gastrointestinal bleeding, intestinal obstruction, long periods in the sun, or pancreatitis. A history of congenital heart disease, arrhythmias, or chemotherapy, doxorubicin, administration may point to cardiogenic shock. Distributive shock should be contemplated when there is a history of fevers, toxic ingestion, anaphylaxis, or head or spinal cord injury. In addition, any immunocompromised patient who presents with a history of fever and is ill-appearing may be in septic shock. Serial vital signs are critical in the diagnosis and management of children with shock. In early, warm, compensated septic shock, vasodilation, warm extremities, tachycardia, a widened pulse pressure, and adequate urine output are seen. In contrast, symptoms of hypovolemic, cardiogenic, and late, cold, uncompensated septic shock include vasoconstriction, tachycardia, cold extremities, poor peripheral pulses, altered consciousness, pallor, sweating, ileus, and oliguria. 
The use of serial vital sign reports in the electronic medical record are an important means by which to detect downward trends in hemodynamic parameters. Automatic alarms or prompts provided by the electronic record to highlight worrisome trends are useful as well. Diagnostic evaluation. During the stabilization period, the clinician must attempt to categorize the potential etiology of shock based on the patient's history, exam, and initial ancillary studies. All patients with shock should be placed on a cardiac monitor regardless of their oxygen saturation on pulse oximetry. The degree of tachycardia is the best determinant of the level of intravascular depletion or vasomotor abnormality. Hypotension is a late finding and occurs only after 40% to 45% of the intravascular volume has been depleted. Diagnostic tests are obtained on the basis of the specific causes suspected. Treatment The treatment of shock is aimed at ensuring perfusion of critical vascular beds, coronary, cerebral, hepatic, renal, and preventing or correcting metabolic abnormalities arising from cellular hypoperfusion. All patients in shock should receive supplemental oxygen as a part of their initial therapy as management of hypoxia reduces the level of metabolic acidosis. Correcting metabolic acidosis results in better cellular function, better myocardial performance, and decreased systemic and pulmonary vascular resistance. Hypovolemic shock is treated with normal saline or lactated ringer solution administered in 20 mL per kilogram boluses up to, and in some cases beyond, a total of 60 mL per kilogram until hemodynamic status normalizes. If hemorrhage is the cause of the hypovolemia, type O negative, cross-matched whole blood or packed red cells may be given. In cardiogenic shock resulting from a congenital heart defect, surgery, a catheter-based interventional procedure, e.g., balloon angioplasty or valvuloplasty, balloon atrial septostomy, or enotropic support may be indicated. Children with severe ischemic injury to the heart, dilated cardiomyopathy, or myocarditis may ultimately need a heart transplant. In distributive shock due to anaphylaxis, intramuscular epinephrine, intravenous fluids, intravenous steroids, diphenhydramine, and albuterol nebulizers are employed. Sometimes intubation for laryngospasm and vasopressors for intractable hypotension are needed. Septic shock is treated with fluids, vasopressors, and broad-spectrum antibiotics. Antibiotics are considered a resuscitation medication for septic shock. Pneumothorax is treated by needle or chest tube decompression, removal of the air from the pleural space. Pericardial tamponade is treated by pericardiosynthesis. Neonates with lesions with ductal-dependent systemic blood flow should be started on prostaglandin, PGE1, therapy as soon as possible to maintain ductal patency and systemic blood flow. The critically injured child Injuries and accidents are the leading cause of morbidity and mortality for children and adolescents. Motor vehicle-associated injuries are the most common cause of death of children of all ages, whether the child is a passenger or struck by a moving vehicle. Blunt injury mechanisms predominate, and it should be presumed that multiple injuries are present until proven otherwise. Clinical manifestations History and physical examination The priorities of assessing children who are seriously injured are similar to adults. However, because of their size, developmental immaturity, larger head-to-body mass ratio and unique physiology the causes and mechanisms of injury in children can vary widely. Most serious pediatric injuries are due to blunt trauma, often involving the brain. Apnea, hypoventilation, and hypoxia are five times more common than hypovolemia in seriously injured children. Children have a smaller body mass, less fat and connective tissue, and a proportionately larger head. These physiologic characteristics result in greater force transmission to internal organs. This results in a high frequency of intraabdominal and traumatic brain injuries. 
Conversely, the child's skeleton is incompletely calcified and more elastic than that of an adult. Internal injuries may be present even when fractures are not. Common mechanisms of and patterns of injury. Children involved in motor vehicle accidents can suffer serious injuries even when properly restrained. These injuries include chest and abdominal injuries, as well as lower spine fractures as a result of forward flexion of the spine against the lap belt, with compression of the lumbar vertebrae. Unrestrained children are at risk for multiple injuries, including head and neck injuries. Children struck by a motor vehicle have different injury patterns than adults. Whereas adults may be struck on the lower extremities, children are shorter, and thus the vehicle's bumper may strike their head, chest, or abdomen causing multiple injuries. Bike helmets can greatly reduce the number of serious head injuries in children involved in bicycle accidents. Helmeted children can still suffer upper extremity fractures, lacerations, and internal abdominal injuries should their abdomen strike the handlebars. Children who fall from a height can suffer a multitude of injuries depending on the height of the fall and the surface of impact. Children who fall from a low height often suffer upper extremity injuries because they brace themselves against impact by extending their arms. Children falling from a moderate to high height can sustain head and neck injuries, as well as multiple fractures of their upper and lower extremities. The abused child injuries as a result of child abuse are a leading cause of mortality in children less than one year of age. It is important to be suspicious of child abuse if the patterns of injury do not match the child's developmental age and the mechanism of injury. Special attention should be paid to inconsistencies in the medical history such as vague details, a delay in seeking care, or discrepancies between the given history and the degree of injury. Findings on physical exam and diagnostic evaluation suggestive of child abuse, especially in infants and small children include intracranial bleeding and retinal hemorrhages which are often caused by an adult shaking the child, trauma to the genital or perianal area, evidence of multiple old fractures in various stages of healing, fractures of long bones in children less than three years of age, and bizarrely patterned injuries such as cigarette burns, whip or ligature marks, or sharply demarcated burns. Please see Chapter 21 for more information on the diagnosis and treatment of the abused child. Diagnostic Evaluation Injured children should ideally be evaluated and managed at a specialized facility with experienced personnel and specialized equipment and resources for pediatric patients. Critically injured children should be transferred to a level 1 trauma facility as soon as they are stabilized. Head injuries Head injuries in children are one of the most common presenting complaints to the emergency department. Given the frequency of head injuries, please see the section on closed head injuries later in this chapter. Cervical spine injuries in multiply injured children, or in those that have been injured during a fall careful attention should be paid to maintaining immobilization of the cervical spine. Children should be placed in an appropriately sized semi-rigid collar. The cervical spine should continue to be immobilized during attempts to intubate at all times. Thoracic injuries penetrating trauma to the thorax is much less common in children than in adults. Nevertheless, careful auscultation of the lungs can reveal decreased or absent breath sounds, suggesting the presence of a pneumothorax, hemothorax, or pulmonary contusion. Muffled heart sounds are characteristic of a pericardial effusion. Tension physiology occurs when the mediastinal structures are pushed to the opposite side of the thorax by a rapidly expanding pneumothorax resulting in the rapid development of obstructive decompensated shock. During the initial assessment of children with multiple injuries a chest x-ray should be obtained to evaluate for pneumothorax, hemothorax, or widened mediastinum, suggesting an aortic dissection, prior to allowing the child to leave the trauma bay for additional studies, such as computed tomography, CT. Abdominal injuries Children with blunt abdominal injuries who are conscious are often frightened both by the events surrounding their injury, and their presence in the emergency department. 
Obtaining an accurate examination of the abdomen can therefore be difficult. Avoid deep painful palpation of the abdomen initially. Carefully inspect the surface of the abdomen for bruising, especially characteristic patterns caused by a car's seatbelt or a bicycle's handlebars. Children who have sustained blunt abdominal trauma and are hypotensive should be rapidly assessed as they have significant odds of having internal injuries. Focused assessment sonography in trauma, FAST, is a technique utilizing ultrasound to identify intraabdominal or pericardial blood. In the hemodynamically stable child with significant abdominal pain a contrast CT of the abdomen and pelvis is indicated. CT scans can identify solid organ injuries, which require operative repair far less frequently than equivalent injuries in adults. Less easily identified by CT scan, but equally important to consider are injuries to the pancreas and small intestine, particularly the duodenum. Rupture of a hollow viscous requires immediate operative intervention. Conversely, a hematoma of the duodenum can present with delayed symptoms of abdominal pain and vomiting, and may not be recognized on initial imaging studies. Laboratory screening studies can be used in order to assess children with suspected blunt abdominal trauma, but without significant pain in order to reduce their exposure to the ionizing radiation of CT scans. The presence of anemia on complete blood count, hematocrit 5 red blood cells per high power field, or elevated liver transaminases, serum aspartate aminotransferase concentration more than 200 U, L or serum alanine aminotransferase concentration more than 125 U, L, increases the odds of an intraabdominal injury being detected on a subsequent CT scan. Children with any of these abnormal lab values should be assessed by contrast CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. Elevated pancreatic enzymes, amylase greater than 125 IU, L, may indicate intraabdominal injury, but is not specific for pancreatic injury. Obtaining baseline values for amylase and lipase can be helpful when assessing subsequent symptoms. Finally, patients that have suffered a femur fracture also have increased odds of having an intraabdominal injury. Suspected child abuse injured children who are suspected to have been abused should undergo evaluation at a specialized pediatric facility with access to trained personnel and social services. Children younger than two years of age cannot give a reliable history of physical injuries and thus should undergo a radiographic skeletal survey looking for fractures. CT of the brain to identify skull fractures or intracranial bleeding is the test of choice for children who have sustained head trauma, especially those that have been forcefully shaken. An examination of the fundi by an ophthalmologist is also essential in order to assess for the presence of retinal hemorrhages. Abnormal laboratory studies, similar to those obtained in selected cases of blunt abdominal trauma, can indicate the presence of solid organ abdominal injuries. Please see Chapter 21 for more information on the diagnosis and treatment of the abused child. Treatment The management of critically injured children should occur at a facility with specialized personnel and resources. Critically injured hypotensive children have an extremely high risk of imminent mortality. Hemorrhagic shock is initially treated with 20 milliliters per kilogram of normal saline boluses. Up to three boluses total should be given in order to improve hemodynamic status. However, administration of blood products should be considered if the child is actively bleeding, or if three normal saline boluses fail to improve the child's circulatory status. It is important to note that children with acute blood loss will not become frankly hypotensive until they have lost approximately 40% to 45% of their circulating blood volume. Children with lesser degrees of hemorrhage will present with signs and symptoms of compensated hypovolemic shock. Orotracheal intubation under direct laryngoscopy is the preferred method of airway management. Rapid sequence intubation may be required. Tube thoracotomy is indicated in children with pneumothorax or hemothorax. Remember to maintain cervical spine immobilization at all times.
A surgeon trained in the management of pediatric injuries should be consulted as soon as possible in suspected intraabdominal injuries. An unstable pelvis should be wrapped with a sheet or appropriate pneumatic device in order to prevent continued extravasation of blood. Obvious long bone injuries should be splinted and immobilized. Children with head injuries and suspected intracranial bleeding should undergo prompt evaluation and management including a neurological exam, assessment of the GCS, and a CT scan of the head. See the following section for more information on treatment for head injuries. Head trauma Acute head trauma is the most common cause of pediatric death and disability in the developed world. Head injuries in children most often result from motor vehicle accidents, bicycle mishaps, falls, or child abuse. Males are twice as likely as females to sustain significant head trauma. Recovery from a head injury depends on the severity of the initial injury and factors contributing to secondary neuronal injury such as hypotension and hypoxia. Severe injury is often associated with behavioral changes, motor impairment, and memory problems. Approximately 10% of children hospitalized for a traumatic brain injury have a seizure, and 35% of these patients will subsequently develop a seizure disorder. A concussion is defined as a brief alteration or loss of consciousness following relatively mild head trauma. Brain injury is undetectable, and the neurologic examination returns to normal within hours. In contrast, cerebral contusions represent a direct injury to the brain itself. Diffuse axonal injury results from shearing forces on the white matter of the brain that occur with rapid deceleration of the head. It is frequently followed by brain edema, further disruption of blood flow, inflammation, and ischemia. Brain hemorrhages that occur secondary to trauma are typically epidural or subdural, table 20-5, fig, 20-3. Some severe brain injuries may also result in subarachnoid injury and bleeding into the CSF. Clinical manifestations History Severe brain injury may occur in the absence of external signs of trauma. The source of injury should be described by the child and caretaker separately whenever possible. A history that is not consistent with a given injury is suggestive of child abuse. Reports of vomiting, severe headache, and mental status changes strongly suggest increased intracranial pressure. Confusion, loss of consciousness, amnesia, seizures, and visual impairment may also be present after significant injury. Physical examination. It is crucial to get an accurate neurological exam, and to assess the child's mental status. Signs and symptoms of a serious head injury include lethargy, decreased level of consciousness, behavioral changes, vomiting, abnormal pupil exam, and posturing. These symptoms occur because of elevated intracranial pressure, which if unchecked, can lead to herniation. The combination of bradycardia, hypertension, and irregular respirations are known as Cushing's triad, and are indicative of increased intracranial pressure which may be as a result of intracranial hemorrhage or swelling or brain tissues after trauma. Patients with these three findings are at risk for imminent herniation. Cranial nerve function, especially pupil size and reactivity, may help localize the injury. Popilledema may be evident on visualization of the fundus. A patient with a head injury and unequal pupils may be herniating, as the brain tissue is pushed below the tentorium and exerting pressure on the third cranial nerve. It is also important to look for signs of a basilar skull fracture on physical exam, including hematympanum, or CSF rhinorrhea or otorrhea. And diffuse bruising around the eyes, raccoon eyes, or postericular, bottles sign, bruising. Palpate the entire skull for depressions or step-offs, which are concerning for depressed skull fractures. Infants with open fontanelles and cranial sutures may tolerate rises in intracranial pressure better and may have more subtle symptoms. Look for bulging of the anterior fontanelle and widened cranial sutures in addition to the aforementioned signs and symptoms.
sensory and motor function is difficult to assess in the patient with impaired mental status, who may respond minimally even to noxious stimuli. Deep tendon and pathologic reflexes should be assessed in all patients. Serial neurologic examinations track evolving lesions and response to interventions. Falls in which the child strikes the side or back of their head may be associated with a higher rate of intracranial bleeding. Almost all children who present with intracranial hemorrhage requiring neurosurgical intervention will manifest in significant symptoms, or have abnormal exam findings within the first four to six hours after the initial injury. Especially when dealing with more significant injuries, assessment of the child's Glasgow Coma Scale, GCS, early on can help guide management, Table 20-6. The GCS is a rapid, widely used, easily reproducible method of quantifying neurologic function. The score is a sum total of three components including eye-opening, motor response to pain, and verbal response. When calculating the GCS it is important to use the patient's best response for each parameter. A GCS of 15 is a perfect score, and indicates a patient who is awake, alert, and cooperative. 3 is the minimum score, and is indicative of deep coma or death. A GCS of 13 to 15 is indicative of a mild traumatic brain injury, 9 to 12 a moderate injury, and is less than or equal to 8 or less a severe injury. Patients with GCS is less than or equal to 8 following head trauma are at risk for severe morbidity and death and generally require immediate intervention. Patients with head injuries should receive a primary survey as soon as possible. Moderate to severe injury may result in altered breathing and the need for respiratory support. The GCS should be calculated to help guide initial therapy. Diagnostic evaluation Cervical spine films are indicated for any patient with significant head trauma to rule out cervical injury. A CT scan of the head is indicated in children who have lost consciousness for greater than 5 seconds or have an abnormal neurologic exam or altered mental status a palpable skull fracture, a severe mechanism of injury, and multiple episodes of vomiting following the initial injury. The primary goal of obtaining a head CT is to identify intracranial bleeding, subdural or epidural hematoma, or subarachnoid bleeding. Children who present without loss of consciousness, have not vomited, and have a normal neurologic exam can be safely observed without need for head court. New evidence suggests that the risk of radiation exposure to immature tissues may be greater than that of adults. As such, efforts should be made in order to avoid exposing children to excess ionizing radiation from CT scans whenever possible. In patients who have sustained mild trauma, have a normal examination, and have a history of a brief alteration or loss of consciousness with subsequent return to normal mental status, the decision regarding imaging is made by the examining physician. A CT of the brain is of little or no benefit in children with mild injury and no loss of consciousness. Treatment Specific treatment depends on the severity of the injury. Patients with suspected head or neck injury should be positioned on a backboard with appropriate cervical spine immobilization in the field. Early consultation with a pediatric neurosurgeon may be necessary in order to consider invasive intracranial pressure monitoring in patients with severe head trauma. Those with severe injury and GCS is less than or equal to 8 generally require intubation. Hypotension is uncommon in isolated head trauma, but associated injuries may lead to shock hypovolemic shock from hemorrhage, neurogenic shock from spinal cord injury, cardiogenic shock from myocardial contusion. In traumatic brain injuries the combination of hypoxia and hypovolemia can result in significantly reduced oxygen delivery to the brain and be devastating. Efforts should be focused on assuring adequate central nervous system perfusion and oxygenation. Infants with open cranial sutures and fontanelles can not only tolerate greater increases in intracranial pressure but also have worse outcomes than older children with similar traumatic brain injuries. In contrast to older children and adults, 
Infants can become hypotensive solely from intracranial hemorrhage. The goal of supportive therapy is to optimize the cerebral perfusion pressure, which is the difference between the mean arterial pressure and the intracranial pressure. Cerebral edema is the most significant complication in the acute period. Normal oxygenation, normoglycemia, hyperosmolality, and elevation of the head of the bed are recommended to minimize intracranial hypertension and secondary brain injury. Mild hyperventilation, which reduces cerebral blood flow, is used to decrease intracranial pressure during the initial phase of therapy. Patients with evidence of impending herniation should be vigorously hyperventilated and given an osmotic agent such as mannitol and or furosemide to decrease intracranial pressure acutely. Patients with evidence of significant cerebral edema require intracranial pressure monitoring with a subdural bolt or intraventricular catheter. Patients with moderate injury and or a declining GCS should be admitted to the hospital for further observation, serial neurologic examinations, and intervention as needed. Children with mild trauma should be observed in the hospital or at home with a reliable, competent caregiver for at least 24 hours. Any evidence of persistent headache, confusion, irritability, behavior changes, or visual disturbances should prompt further medical attention and workup. Key points No matter what the cause of cardiopulmonary arrest, the algorithms outlined for pediatric basic and advanced cardiac life support should be followed. A primary assessment, circulation, airway, breathing, disability, exposure, should be performed, followed by resuscitative measures, if necessary. Approximately half of the causes of pediatric arrest are due to respiratory arrest, which can be brought about by upper airway obstruction, lower airway obstruction, restrictive lung disease, or any etiology that results in inadequate gas exchange. Management of the unresponsive child or adolescent is shown in Figure 20-4. If resuscitation does not establish cardiac output, the following mechanical or metabolic causes should be investigated. Hypothermia, tension pneumothorax, hemothorax, cardiac tamponade, profound hypovolemia, profound metabolic imbalance, toxic ingestion, and closed head injury. Determine the category of shock and whether the patient has early or late manifestations. Hypovolemic shock accounts for most cases of shock in children. In hypovolemic shock, hypotension is a late finding, and the degree of tachycardia is the most sensitive measure of intravascular fluid status. In septic shock, antibiotics are a resuscitation medication and their administration should not be delayed. A patient in decompensated shock can progress to cardiopulmonary arrest in minutes. Children with acute blood loss will not become frankly hypotensive until they have lost approximately 40% to 45% of their circulating blood volume. When obtaining labs during the evaluation of a hemodynamically stable child with blunt abdominal trauma the presence of anemia on complete blood count, hematuria on urinalysis, or elevated liver transaminases increases the odds of an intraabdominal injury being detected on a subsequent CT scan. A CT scan of the head is indicated to evaluate for intracranial hemorrhage following head trauma in children who have lost consciousness for greater than 5 seconds or have an abnormal neurologic exam or altered mental status, a palpable skull fracture, a severe mechanism of injury, and multiple episodes of vomiting following the initial injury. Children can suffer multiple injuries during accidents involving motor vehicles. Paying careful attention to the mechanism of injury can aid clinicians in their evaluation.